0: Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna,
1: and me, Frederick. In this episode, we sit down with J.P. Smith from Trail of Bits to talk about audits, software quality, and tools that you can use today to make your smart contract better. We're sitting here with J.P. Smith from Trail of Bits. Welcome, J.P.
2: Thanks. Glad to be here.
0: So today we're going to be talking about security and specifically software audits. Frederick, should we start by just defining exactly what a software audit is?
1: I, th- I think that's good. Maybe starting with uh, like the Wikipedia definition, and then I'd like to hear J.P.'s definition as well. So the Wikipedia definition is a software audit is a type of software review in which one or more auditors who are not members of the dev team, uh, organize, uh, a sort of independent examination of software product process, uh, and assess compliance to specifications and standards and et cetera. Uh, which sounds really boring and doesn't really actually say all that much about what's actually done in an audit. Um, so JP, what, what, what will your definition of an audit be? So,
2: I mean, maybe the best way to explain it is to walk you through the process a little bit on our end. So usually, if we're going to do an audit, a client reaches out to us with a specific set of risks that they're trying to avoid with their software. So they develop some wallet, and they want to make sure that people can't just steal a fund stored inside. Or they're developing some entirely new token offering, and they want to make sure that uh, people can only get tokens by paying a fair price for them and can't um, get the services those tokens are redeemed for for uh, free. So then we'll sit down with them, we'll usually scope it out, we'll say you know it's gonna take about two people four weeks to properly assess all this code, we'll look at their code a little bit, we'll look at the level of thoroughness they're trying to achieve and if they have any other unusual considerations. And then put together a proposal, we'll agree on something, and then sit down for a kickoff where the auditors will go over with the client what our goals are, what we're looking at. Um, We'll maybe clarify, like, this is how this works, this is the acceptable behavior, this is what a failure mode is. So then we'll spend a few weeks looking through the code for um, all kinds of bugs, especially those that directly affect the risks they said, but really, um, any kind of small bug can have security implications sometimes. So then we'll usually deliver a report to the client at the end of the engagement. There'll be a few status meetings where we'll catch up, make sure everyone's on the right track, and uh, we're looking at the stuff we're supposed to be looking at, working as productively as we can. But then, yeah, at the end... We'll deliver them a report, which is usually a doc full of here's all the stuff we found, implications, how you can mitigate against it, some uh, practices you might want to consider adopting. And then also, we frequently deliver some new um, tooling to them to test their code more thoroughly. So, like we have an in house Solidity static analyzer that finds a lot of bugs pretty automatically. We set our clients up with a copy of that so that they can just run that in their code. And iron out those bugs before possibly coming back to us later for a re-audit. So, I mean, obviously the specific process, the specific stuff we're looking for, and our specific methodology vary greatly depending on who the client is, what the software is, and what their needs and risks and threat models are. But that's about the general shape of it.
0: Yeah, that was actually my follow-up there was when you're giving your when you're actually making an estimate on how much time and how much energy you're gonna be putting into this. Um I was wondering if that had a lot to do with the complexity or actually the the risk. The the level of like a security fa- failure for certain kinds of software will have will obviously hold a different risk than those of others. And I'm wondering does that actually does that change your estimates? Does that change the amount of resources you put at something?
2: Yeah, so certainly I can be more thorough with 4 weeks than 2 and I can be more thorough with 8 weeks than 4. So um to a degree it's the level of assurance they want. A lot of it's also scope. So most like processes happen across a ton of software, some of, wh- some of which is developed by the company, some of which isn't. Um, and then there's also a bunch of kind of human processes that aren't necessarily in software. Like their actual custodial solution will have a technical component. So the wallet, maybe if they have some multi-sig contract, but it'll also have a human component of how do they agree when to send transactions. So a lot of what makes us determine the size of an engagement is more scoping than anything else. So how close to the um, core of the audit do we have to stay versus how much um, code, how many processes do you need us to look at?
1: So let's take a little step back and look at Trail of Bits. And so what is the company? How did it kind of get started and what does it do as i understand it like the blockchain stuff is actually a pretty recent addition to what trail of bits does
2: yeah so trail of bits was founded in 2014 by dan guido and alex Sorov a couple expert hackers who have been um in security for a long time we focus mostly on research so we do very little conventional like web app pen testing. We don't really do web apps. We don't really do like network pen testing. We do a lot of work with uh, groups like DARPA instead about producing new foundational tools and sharing our knowledge to make the whole industry more secure. So about a year ago uh, we really saw the blockchain space blowing up and there was kind of a hole in the... Um, there weren't a lot of great security options. So if you wanted to write secure smart contracts then that was really, really hard for a number of reasons, including, you know, they're public, everyone can see them and is heavily incentivized to attack them a lot of the time. Solidity is kind of a crazy language. So we started um, looking at smart contracts, figuring out what parts of the expertise we had could be applied to this new domain, developing new tooling. After spending, I don't know, three months, six months uh, doing research, building out tools... We decided that we were ready to confidently start taking work in this space. And, uh, yeah, things kind of blew up. We've had a ton of clients looking for a ton of different audits. We've built out a whole suite of tooling to do kind of program analysis, fuzzing, symbolic execution, whatever. And uh, it's still a minority of our company. Like, I think 25%-ish of the work we do is on the blockchain. Don't quote me on that. That's a number made up that's on <laughs> you know, what it looks like in Slack. But um, yeah, it's still a minority of the work we do, but it's been really cool. Uh, it's a rare opportunity to develop a lot of foundational tooling for this new and really important sector.
1: On your website, it actually says that you do LLVM engineering, and I was just super curious to hear what that's about. So actually, we we didn't mention at the start of this episode but Parity actually employed Trail of Bits to do security audits for it and that's kind of how we got in touch in the first place um and Parity's audit included both Solidity code and Rust code and for us that was like an important factor in finding someone that could do both so Going back to sort of LLVM and Rust, how did what what is what do you do in LLVM and how did you get started in Rust?
2: We've always been passionate about doing low level program analysis, and the people at LLVM are really really good at low level program analysis because they make a world class compiler. They're also very security minded. Like it's it's really hard to write vulnerable code with all the Clang warnings turned on. So um, right now. We maintain a tool called Mixema that actually lifts binary programs into LLVM IR to make analysis of oh, so them cool. easier. It uses a whole separate tool you wrote called Remil to do instruction semantics, and Mixema kind of does program semantics. But we've done some previous, I think, like reachability analysis with this tool called Points2. Uh, right now, I think we're funded by DARPA to build Mixema, but we've done LLVM work for um, I don't remember which clients I can disclose, but no, we're really passionate about building secure program analysis tooling using LLVM because they have so many tools to make it way easier.
1: Yeah, that sounds awesome. I didn't I didn't even know that that whole space was a thing, but it, like now that you say it, it makes total sense.
2: And then as for Rust, um, we wrote this tool a while back called App Jail Launcher to securely run untrusted code on Windows via this uh, App Jail or App Container Windows feature that I I forget the name of, but a really powerful mitigation. But uh, we wanted to make sure it was more modern and secure, and Rust is a great language for that. So we recently rewrote it all in Rust. It's called like App Jail Launcher RS, and um, it provides Windows sandboxing capabilities. That was our first official Rust product. But uh, it's a really great language. We, we love it. We'd like to do more with it. The type system's awesome. The community's great.
0: Uh, going forward, um, one of the topics that we've actually talked about a couple times in previous podcasts was the, um, the difference between how you ship software in sort of the usual tech like startup land versus in the blockchain space. Um, in the blockchain space, obviously there's so much more on the line and there's so much more like mission critical code that goes out. Um, has that like totally changed, like from your perspective, like, has that also changed the way that you guys approach these projects or is it kind of the same for you?
2: So, I mean, the blockchain software development space is still in its infancy. They don't really have a compelling story of a software development life cycle yet. So, I mean, mission-critical code gets shipped all the time for blockchain applications, for non-blockchain applications, but for a lot of the other sectors that we look at where they're shipping mission-critical code, like, say, defense or finance or something, they've been doing this for decades, and they have a really defined process, a really great set of tools that work in that process. They have an experience, whereas in blockchain, everyone's still figuring that out. So, I mean, there's enough unique constraints, like once you put some contract on the blockchain, it's visible to everyone and totally immutable, that you can't just reuse the old tooling. But I would say that the whole life cycle of of software development, from like idea to deployment, is still very much being invented. and We're happy to be a part of figuring that out.
1: Yeah, so TrailerBits does security audits. You sort of help other companies. And like you're saying, you kind of, want to help shape this new process of development. Um but you like you said before, you also do quite a lot of R and D. So how does that look within the company? Do you have people that are dedicated to research, some to development, some to like doing audits with external parties? Is it is it all mixed or like how um is that split between R and D and other work done? So
2: we're really small. We're about thirty people. And so it isn't as defined. Like, personally, I split my time uh, probably pretty evenly between R&D and uh, more audit-based consulting. There's certainly products that we do that are in a gray area. Like, a lot of how we refine our tools and make them useful for real people is by testing them on code in audits and seeing what bugs they find, what bugs they can't find. So I mean, sometimes I would argue that we do them at the same time. but. Uh, in terms of like how it works for everyone, there's people who do pretty much entirely R&D. There's people who do uh, majority audits. I don't think anyone does like entirely audits. But uh, different people do different stuff based on what they're good at and what our workload looks like. It's really pretty flexible.
0: Are there certain projects, just for you personally, that you're like, like are certain directions that you're really excited about? Do you have a field of expertise there?
2: Um. Definitely. So, I just open-sourced Echidna. It's uh, the first ever smart contract fuzzer. So, that was a blast to write. Um, I think it does some really cool stuff and provides a much-needed utility. So, I'm excited to keep refining that to see what the community does with it and to uh, work with people on getting into their workflows. Um, I think Manticore is another project of ours that I personally love working on. Um, I'm always impressed by the cool stuff my colleagues cook up with it. It's kind of a general binary analysis framework that supports like symbolic execution, instrumentation, tank analysis. It works for... um, It was developed at first for just Decree for DARPA's Cyber Grand Challenge, which is like x86 with seven syscalls. And then we added ARM support later, and now it actually has EVM support, so it's a very much applicable in all those different kinds of problems. And you can write some really cool analyses with a fully symbolic EVM to play with. Um, in terms of directions, I'd love to see us um, do more Haskell work from a selfish perspective. is our first Haskell project, but uh, writing in Haskell is my favorite way to write code. And I'm um, excited to see us develop there more I'm definitely excited to see our static analysis solutions for EVMs start to really mature. Right now, those aren't really public, but uh, we'll be releasing a brand new tool that should make static analysis radically easier at CanSecWest in the next week or two. I forget what CanSecWest exactly is. Cool, cool. And uh, I mentioned earlier Slither, our internal cool. static analyzer, is uh, it just finds a ton of bugs.
1: Let's let's dig into these some of these tools uh kind of one by one because I think they're all super interesting. So you, you were talking about Manticore, what do you call it? symbolic symbolic analysis or symbol, symbolic execution?
2: Symbolic execution.
1: Yeah. Symbolic execution for not only like x86, ARM, but now EVM. But what does that like? What does it look like to actually use Manticore? Do you write tests using Manticore? Do you run Manticore on your code, or like, what what is the sort of ideal usage of this, and in, at which stage of the pipeline is it during deployment or CI, or you know, where does it live?
2: So Manticore is really a framework, and there's a few different ways to use it. Uh, there's a command line Manticore tool that basically just takes an argument of a program to analyze, assumes its inputs are fully symbolic, and then generates all the states it could find, plus interesting warnings or whatever. But then it's also a Python library, so you can write a custom analysis that loads uh, some particular code and then constrains Manticore, tells Manticore what to look for, does some state manipulation. I think using Manticore in CI isn't a thing that I've seen a lot of yet, but it would be awesome, um, I love that idea. During development is definitely a good time. We use it during audits a lot to uh, fully exhaust the path some function can take that we really care about. But uh, what, it's, what it's really useful for is you have some piece of code and you want to know every possible way this code can execute and what kind of conditions would cause it to execute in some ways that you care about. So that's a question you can ask during CI. That's a question you can ask during development. That's a question you can ask during like QA or an audit or whatever. But it's that's the question that Manticore is well-equipped to answer.
1: But if you're running this on the lower level opcodes, I mean, aren't you... Like if you take a Rust program, for instance, you know a lot of what can go through a program by looking at what the types for that program is. But... Uh, like most of that type information is actually thrown away once you get down to the lowest level. So, so I guess I'm asking is, is there like a work that could be skipped if you bring that analysis up to a higher level or is it, does that not really matter?
2: I mean, certainly you can do more, uh, cer- certainly having a richer language makes it helpful to introspect and some of the data that captures, that gets back to, like, we were talking about LLVM earlier. Um, I love doing program analysis and LLVM IR because that preserves a lot of the stuff you were talking about, like types and, like, whole program semantics. But also, um, I think a lot of what you're looking at is kind of the divide between static and dynamic analysis, which are very complementary schools of thought, but Manticore is a dynamic analysis framework. So dynamic analysis is focused on just executing the program. Um, the execution doesn't care what the types are. The execution just cares how it actually moves the machine around. And so that's what Manticore looks at. Our static analysis tools like Slither care more about the, the structure of the program, the semantics of the program. So those operate on Solidity and will preserve and return results based on the type information.
1: Then, and, and I suppose that also means that you could actually find some bugs in manticore that you couldn't buy static analysis if you have a bug in your compiler like if for some reason something goes wrong while actually compiling your high level code down into bytecode, uh, you might actually leave something open say that you have a constrained type but that's not um, like actually how it's called from some external environments
2: yeah, I mean there are bugs. Static analysis is good at catching. If there's bugs. Dynamic analysis is good at catching. I think ultimately it's better to use both because they're very complementary.
1: Yeah. So moving on to to the next one that's on my on my list is EtherSplay. Can you give me the high level on that?
2: Yeah. Um, so that's our tool for disassembling EVM code using Binary Ninja. Uh, Binary Ninja is a disassembly tool that we love at Trail of Bits. We've written a bunch of blog posts about how to use it. Uh, we actually work with the developers to report issues and get them fixed. So, ether's Play lets you view EVM code in Binary Ninja, and then also use some of Binary Ninja's powerful analysis functionality to write your own analyses of that code. And you can even do cool stuff, like visualize how uh, Manticore is executing some EVM program in Binary Ninja using Ethersplay.
1: Mm, that's interesting.
2: But it's uh, it makes reading code easier, is ultimately the thing that it helps with the most.
1: And next up is Slither, which you already mentioned.
2: That's our static analyzer. It takes solidity code. it uh, kind of converts it into an abstract syntax tree, does a little bit of control flow recovery, and then runs a bunch of... Uh, heuristics against that abstract representation to find bugs. So it's a bit like a, a lint around steroids, I guess. But I can tell you that in practice, it's been unreasonably effective. And it's usually our kind of step zero for Solidity audits.
1: So it makes sense, definitely makes sense to run this regularly. Like, is there any even setup or anything at all to run this, or do you just run it?
2: It's a Python script.
1: Yeah. So it should be run... Like every time you save your document, basically.
0: Is this one of the one of the pieces of software that you actually do share with clients and ask them to run, just like regularly as you're doing this?
1: So
2: it's uh, it's not open source right now, but we uh, get copies to our clients and tell them, you know, just run this every commit, uh, fix the stuff it finds, and we can focus on a lot like richer, deeper bugs in our next audit.
1: Cool. So Slither and Manticore is actually. You want to run both, like you said, you want both like code level analysis and then you want Manticore, but but maybe the the pipeline looks different. Like Slither, you run every, every time you save your document, but Manticore, you run it every once in a while when you have compiled or like when you think that you have something that is what you want it to be. So usually Manticore
2: is a bit more involved to set up. So we usually actually have to write code to get Manticore doing an analysis of some smart contract. So we'll use Solidity to capture a lot of surface-level stuff. And then let's say our client has some code that does a bunch of complicated math, and we want to make sure that this math is always correct. Then we'll write a custom Manticore analysis of the function that performs the math that verifies that no matter what the inputs are, it always returns the correct result. So I would say Solidity catches a lot of general surface-level stuff, whereas you can use Manticore to do deeper analysis of more specific
1: questions. That makes sense, yeah. And finally we have Echidna, which is something that you just kind of launched um, and announced. And um, What does Echidna do?
2: So Echidna is a smart fuzzer. So what it does is it uh, makes a ton of random function calls, ...to a contract, and then it runs tests to make sure that you can't find some sequence of function calls that break stuff. So you'll you'll write these tests that check that the, the state of your contract is okay. Where okay depends a lot on the business application and company in question. And then Echidna will uh, try a ton of random stuff and see if it can find a way to make those assumptions false, find some bugs... Find a way to get the state of the contract to be uh, something that is incorrect or buggy. It also supports writing fancier models than just simple solidity tests. So you can write a whole uh scale model of the abstract state machine that your contract implements. And then uh, verify that your contract actually does implement that. Mm. But that's... So it... it Kind of runs like a mut from a unit testy, s- write simple tests and then fuzz to verify them to a very manticore esque, write a sophisticated model, and then uh, check the contract against it.
1: So looking at that same kind of pipeline of where does Echidna fit in from you know running it every time you save your doc, doc to running it on CI or or writing specific things like where where would you say that Echidna lives and, and how do you see an average developer using it? So,
2: I would say that there's there's kind of two modes of using Echidna. So, the easiest thing to do is just write a few Solidity unit tests and then verify them with Echidna whenever you run um, Slither or whatever. It takes like a minute to run. So, I can see people doing that on every commit in CI, whatever. Yeah. And then there's more thorough analyses that um, I wrote that functionality so I can use it on audits, basically. but I could see developers also having some of these analyses that they really take some time to thoroughly verify this complicated property but then ultimately that takes about as long to check as the unit tests so I mean I would say that you can also run it every commit it depends what kind of or I would say that I would use it like a testing framework so I would write tests in terms of echidna and then um, whenever I would run my regular unit tests i would run my fuzz tests too yeah and uh those are complementary
1: for a long time i was actually really keen on getting into the info sex space like the, the general security stuff and um you know I've, I've been a developer for many many years and i've seen sort of how what we were talking about before, where quality versus quantity of software was playing in and um, working in the startup space for a very long time. What I actually kind of got fed up with in the startup space is that quality doesn't really matter. The reason why it bugs me is that I can make a good argument for why quality does not matter in a startup. (laughs) And and I, I want a counter argument to that, but I can't find one. But digging into like infosec i started listening to podcasts like security now which is great risky business paul security weekly etc and i got this overwhelming feeling of like the whole industry is focused on zero day patches uh trying to secure active directory and just mundane sort of infosec opsec tasks of like securing a windows environment and like I see Trail of Bits website and, and it's like, oh, this is actually super cool stuff. So my question is, and maybe there isn't a great answer to this, but how do you get away from that typical like securing a Windows environment type of infosec work to actually doing the R&D and, and the stuff that Trail of Bits is doing?
2: Like in terms of career progression? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I always just try to... Do work that I found more interesting. So um, I had an internship for a while in a pretty standard blue team IT security shop, and I didn't like that so much. So I focused on doing CTFs, doing open source development, um, doing my own security research, and then also sharing that research, whether open source or via blog posts or um, whatever, and Ultimately I found Trail of Bits. Um our our values, the stuff that we thought was important in security kind of lined up. And uh yeah, started here right after college.
0: Cool. You talked a little bit about your background and how you got interested in this space, but I was wondering if you have noticed anything about like what would make a good auditor. What what's the what's the sort of a personality or like is there any sort of qualities that you that you feel you have or you feel like a lot of people working with you have that's different from other kinds of devs.
2: I would say that in general it it rewards obsessiveness in a way.
0: <laughs> I have I've listed paranoia maybe a little.
2: Paranoia? Definitely. <laughs> um you got to be creative too. Like a lot of the time you have a lot of small logic bugs that do something kind of weird and Combining them together to uh, create something that's actually dangerous is is really a creative process Um, It takes a lot of empathy and communication skills. So like actually working with the client and Going from like these documents and like an hour-long phone call to how do we Minimize the risk to the the things that they actually care about takes a lot of soft skills and um i feel like that's really underemphasized in the industry as a whole
1: and i assume it's also like quite a lot of actually trying to figure out what the client wants and not necessarily what they're asking for because usually like you're working with people that doesn't necessarily have all the expertise or like what they should be looking for so also like bringing that recommendation to the forefront
2: yeah, I mean, I feel like that responsibility, though, is largely on the security auditors. So, I mean, we're talking to people who know more about the business they run than literally anyone else. So being able to ask them good questions about what they find valuable and what kind of risks really concern them and why is probably the auditor's job. And then interpreting yeah. that into, like, these are the technical things we need to look at is part of the, um, yeah, it's, it's part of the gig.
0: Within the auditor space, is there like what I've, what I've seen is from speaking to a couple people in the space, it seems like a lot of the people are very, very detail oriented and there is a little bit of competition, seemingly, a little bit of one, one upmanship. Do you find that happens maybe in your office? Is that like a thing? Um, like
2: <laughs> I certainly don't know about one upmanship, but I mean, security is like. It started out as a bunch of pseudonymous people on IRC showing off some crazy hack they put together <laughs> over the weekend. Yeah. Nice. Like, doing stuff because it's cool and doing, you know, kind of showing off a little bit has always been a part of the culture for better or for worse, but it's something that I enjoy.
0: Well, that really, that, thanks for that. That was actually, the question was a bit like the spirit of the auditor, and I think we got that.
2: I mean, yeah, no, it, it feels great to find a really cool bug and, you know, put it together into a awesome exploit, then you can go to the bar with your friends after work and be like, you'll never believe how I figured out <laughs> how to, like, steal these people's money today. I chained together, like, six different small whatever-whatever.
0: So good. Um, I did a little bit of research on a number of different auditors at some point um, in the last few months, and looking across sort of the industry and trying to figure out, you know, who's good, who's who's relevant for what we were doing. Um, and I was kind of curious about what you think of that space because there's a lot of people who will say that they do audits or that they or there's groups that will be like, yes, this is what we're doing. But how does one gauge the quality? like is it just looking at previous projects like you i mean even when you decided to work at Trail of Bits like how did you gauge the quality
2: um i mean the community is really small and the community is really tight knit so i i checked my friends and i was like hey is Trail of Bits legit and they were like oh yeah those guys are really it's legit <laughs> uh,
1: i guess Word that's a mouth. perk of yeah i guess that's a perk <laughs> of being inside the industry whereas like uh, us other normal people who are outside it i mean you kind of look from the outside and, and there's a certain opaqueness and like you can look at certifications and stuff but like in my experience they don't really matter and so like how do you actually like dig in and find someone that you know that knows what they're talking about
2: um i found trail of bits for the first time on reddit uh like a long time ago when I was still in the spray and pray phase of looking for internships. So I was just going down the like r slash netsec hiring thread and applying everywhere. I saw a trail of bits and I was like, whoa, these guys seem to, uh, to be kind of different from all the other folks in this thread. I should uh, shoot them an application and I mean, I guess I just got lucky there. But that was how I initially found them and then yeah, talk to their people like when I had conversations about the work that I was doing about the work that I wanted to do they had intelligent and insightful answers uh, looked at their GitHub checked out you know this is the kind of projects that they work on this is the kind of code they write and I was impressed
1: so I think that's a good tip actually of of people especially like in the blockchain space trying to look for an audit or auditors to not look specifically for a blockchain auditor because there are so many, like it, like you were saying, that the whole industry is in its infancy. Um, There's so many people now trying to profit off of this and just go out and say, I'm an auditor, and um, you have no idea what their background is. But if you actually go into these other, more traditional InfoSec spaces, um, you'll probably find more legit people.
2: Yeah, and I mean, look, we're sort of the blockchain experience is definitely a good plan. There's a lot of weird bug classes that are very specific to say Solidity, um, because Solidity is such a weird language. And I, I do think it makes sense to look for someone who has experience looking for those, and who knows how to find the kind of stuff that only happens in blockchain applications. But I think also traditionally, traditional security skills, traditional security methodology is just as applicable as ever. And you really gotta do well. Both on just the i guess regular security side, air quotes and the blockchain specific domain specific side
0: I guess one one sort of challenge there though is like if you do have these sort of emerging projects so they're pretty new, they might be really small i mean if it, like the real security auditors, those who've been around for a long time they 're not cheap, so what happens when these sm- smaller projects or a dev creating something needs an audit like do you, do you guys help with that, or do you send them somewhere? Do you have external people you work with? Like, What would you do in the case of if you were in that position?
2: So you mean like I want an audit, but I'm still a startup project. I can't afford something comprehensive from Trail of Bits? Yeah. I'm not sure. That's a hard position to be in. So auditing software thoroughly takes a lot of resources, um, no matter how you slice it. So we really try to make our tools easy to use and open source so that people can at least DIY it somewhat. Um, There's certainly auditors who will charge less. I don't think that we redirect people to anyone in particular. But I mean, ultimately, if you want something that takes a ton of resources to execute on and you don't have a lot of resources, then you have to make compromises. And what compromises you make depends a lot on your situation and your priorities.
0: Do you see any tools in the pipeline, though, maybe you're at, at your place or out, outside of Trail of Bits, where that might actually help a lot of those like early stage projects, where there might be some tools that they can use? I mean, you kind of mentioned a couple of them, but are there any others? Um,
2: yeah, Kitten is open source. Uh, ManaCore is open source. Uh, there's some free Solidity static analyzers, which I'm completely blanking on the name of. If you search like Solidity static analyzer, you'll find some stuff. Um, just reading write-ups. We have a big repo of not so smart contracts that's like annotated Solidity with these weird bugs that only happen in Solidity. Keeping up with the community, so you know, going to conferences, talking to people there about how they ensure there aren't any bugs. I'm really excited for more secure by design development technology. So like better languages, better frameworks, but ultimately it's really hard. Um, There isn't really a solution. There's a bunch of stuff you can do to get slightly better and catch slightly more bugs. And at the end of the day, you just have to hope that you've done enough of that to uh, achieve what you set out to.
1: I, uh, I'll definitely link to the not-so-smart contracts in the show notes because I think that's awesome. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a great point. And this is um, a little bit of the distinction as well between, like I was saying before, the traditional kind of startup space. Security doesn't really matter all that much. If you lose everyone's data, you say, I'm sorry, and nothing really happens. You're not going to go out of business. I mean, it's kind of shit. Uh, it, but it's that's the truth, like, like that's reality. But in this space, like it, it really is like you can't make mistakes. You're not a like it. It just can't happen, um, and it is tough for someone just like trying to write a write an app, try to trying to write a decentralized app and, and build their dream business. And you know there there's no way to kind of actually make sure that it's secure. But I think that the The best thing that you could do is actually take tools like Echidna and Manticore and and apply those and just try to put in the work yourself um, rather than having to pay for everything. Yeah, like a lot
2: of the the people in the space are really excited about being your own bank and running your own financial infrastructure and what have you. But like being a bank is really hard. Um, Being a bank is really expensive. You have to spend a lot of time like auditing stuff and making sure that you're really careful about a lot of stuff like if you want to run a whole parallel financial infrastructure more power to you but the bar for running financial infrastructure is pretty high and you have to be willing to play at that level if you want to seriously do it
1: so uh, this sort of brings me to another Of my questions and and a thing that I think about a lot in especially audits, you know, there's an impermanence in software, software constantly changes development changes, even smart contracts are now starting to like use these frameworks for upgradable contracts and things like that. So like, how do you see that kind of ever changing space matched together with audits? Because like an audit is a snapshot in time and telling you things are good here but then you, you have to keep moving. You have to like move forward. Um,
2: I mean, I'm not sure that's, that's how I see an audit. So when I rate an audit report, I certainly try to assess this is the quality of things at this moment in time. But we also try to give recommendations for development going forwards. We give short and long-term recommendations. We'll look at trends in the bugs we find. Like if this one piece of code has all the bugs in the audit then the, the story isn't this one piece of code was really bad at this single point in time. It's you need to change how you develop to not have pieces of code that look like this. Yeah. And we try to you know, set people up with better testing methodology, try to set people up with better CI, so that ideally an audit gives you enough information that you can permanently improve your processes and development lifecycle. So that's, that's partially on us to deliver that information that's partially on the client to ask for the right stuff and then take action on it. But I think that when an audit is done well on both sides, it's really something valuable for years.
1: That's a good point. There's a shared learning there or like it's part of an educational effort as well. But so how do you see, like, do you recommend redoing audits with regular intervals or like yearly or, or is it like a thing that you feel people should do again when they have enough changed or where they're starting to feel uncertain or how do you see that?
2: I really can't give you a one-size-fits-all recommendation here. I wish I could say just do an audit every 18 months and you'll be secure, but that's that's not how security works.
0: Like a medical check.
2: I would say, definitely. I would recommend that when people do an audit, they talk to the people who they're working with and say, you know, this is our goal going forwards. This is our plan going forwards. This is our development roadmap. Um, when do you recommend we do this again? How do you recommend that we do this ourselves in the meantime? How do you recommend, et etc. et cetera? I certainly recommend regularly having audits if security is something critical to your uh, business. But I can't give a great recommendation for um, sight unseen. You should have audits this often.
1: Going back a little bit to the blockchain stuff and where we're talking about Solidity and and EVM and and things like that. um, I was, or we were all three actually, although I was only there briefly, at FCC over this past weekend. uh, Big, huge conference and a lot of talks on on every possible topic, you guys introduced some tools there, had some workshops and um there were like six talks i think on wasm or webassembly as like the replacement for e v m and sort of sort of brings me to the question of how do you see the landscape change from its current sort of solidity e v m base to you know something other than solidity and and you know, maybe Wasm or maybe something else.
2: So I think it's going to be a good thing. I think that, like, if you look at that not so smart contracts repo we were talking about, Solidity uniquely enables a bunch of nasty kind of bugs that look really innocuous. So I think that just getting rid of Solidity and moving to a bit more modern language will be like web backend development moving off PHP. It just makes being secure easier for everyone. That's going to make people more secure on average.
1: Uh, I I was talking to uh, Greg Colvin, who's the uh, who's working a lot on on EVM and and uh, the VM stuff in general, and uh, it, about exactly the, this topic of like what languages should you do and write in and whatever. And he said, uh, just write assembly and verify it.
2: I mean, I don't know. It's hard to give people advice that I feel confident in about smart contract development. Like, writing writing assembly is obviously really hard. Like, hand-rolling a significant piece of software in assembly is not something I feel confident being like, okay, that's how you like should start your new company. Just, uh, you know, get some magnets in a floppy and get to work. Yeah. Um, but Solidity is also extraordinarily hard to uh, write secure code in. I hope that going forwards, we have a set of best practices that I can confidently recommend. You know, do this, check these things. You should still probably hire professionals, but you'll have a pretty good start. Right now, I don't feel like that's something we have.
1: So, how do you see this? Like, when you start talking about languages, like, Solidity was originally, like, made a little bit with the intention of being easy to adopt for you know, average developers who do Java or JavaScript or C or whatever. So they make it kind of look a little bit like that. Um, me personally, I would love would love to have seen or would love to see at some point in the future, like a Haskell embedded DSL that spits out EVM code or something. But, you know, history is shown and like Haskell doesn't actually have that much adoption. JavaScript has a ton of adoption. So you're kind of you kind of end up in this security versus adoption trade off, in a way. And I, I I haven't really made up my own mind about how I think about it because obviously I uh, have written Haskell for many years and I love Haskell, but it's it's clearly not for everyone. And and I also like want lots of adoption for blockchain technology so we can actually build some of these cool apps that everyone like wants to be built. So how do you see Um, This trade-off between having a language that is probably not so secure, but has, you know, great adoption versus having a language that's harder to pick up, but is actually very secure. Or do you not see that trade-off really necessarily being there?
2: I'm not sure as an ecosystem, we're at the point where that trade-off is something that's like a huge problem. I think we could get better than Solidity in several dimensions at once. And I mean I think that once we've we've made some progress in that direction once we have like you know, any kind of a better language, like once we have the the C or whatever, that's kind of a middle of the road, fairly adopted, fairly secure language, then we can start talking about whether we really want to prioritize whether it's worth making people learn monads or whether it's worth making people learn linear types or all these other fancy safety features. But I think we should cover the basics first and, like, get to, yeah, I'd say, like, the C++ uh, kind of level of acceptable in terms of usability and also modern features.
1: How do you see the the security change or uh, the security trade-off between EVM, which is tailored specifically for blockchain, uh, with all that that has in mind, and something like... WebAssembly, which is not tailored for it at all, but on the other hand, you can generate WebAssembly code through like LLVM, which already has a bunch of tooling for it.
2: Yeah, being able to use LLVM seems like a huge win to me. Uh, that seems like probably a strict improvement, honestly. Just having a whole modern compiler infrastructure. Like is kind of bizarre. Um, there's been examples in the wild of it calculating one by taking, like, 100 to the zero power or something. <laughs> and, like, if you read the generated assembly from any time it does anything with structs, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. There's certainly, like, you could certainly have a real debate about what the optimal ISA for these kind of applications is, and I would find that fascinating. But um, moving from EVM to... Something that works with LVM is, I think, just a win. Yeah,
1: well, that was good. Good, good to hear from from someone like yourself. I I believe you too, but I don't have any strong reason or conviction to believe it. Like uh, it just feels intuitively right to me. But I've also talked to some people who who don't who don't agree with it. So um, I really, I, I I suppose it's one of those things where time will tell.
2: I mean, go back. Five or ten years ago, and find a bunch of old exploits and read about the bugs they use, and then see if you can get that code to compile with Clang with all the warnings on. And like, odds are you can't.
1: No. Yeah.
0: So I have I have sort of one last question, uh, JP. I'm curious. Do you have any like horror stories from like things you found that you can share? Um, just horrible, horrible. Bugs, mistakes, problems. I feel like you must see a lot of things.
2: Um, you mean like in general or just blockchain, <laughs> blockchain stuff? Blockchain
0: stuff would be great, but general is cool too if you don't have a something off the top of your head.
2: Um, oh man, I'm trying to think about what's under NDA and what isn't. IOTA, that's an example of a horror story. IOTA made their own hash function, which they claim AI designed. I'm not actually sure what that means. I would guess they just tried a bunch of s-boxes and picked some ones that worked. Um, It doesn't have modern security properties at all. It's totally broken under most ways you use a hash function. They just have this bizarre and convoluted use case that uh, no one's found a horrible exploit for yet, and so they claim it's secure.
1: Well, they did find one horrible exploit uh, at one point, and the IOTA team said that they'd put it there on purpose as copyright protection.
2: Oh, right. No, no, no. That was, I forgot about that. Oh, man. Yeah, and then they decided to instead of fixing anything, get in Twitter beef with a bunch of the most respected cryptographers in the industry.
1: Yeah, that seems like a reasonable approach.
2: Yeah, that was horrible. <laughs> I mean, the the thing about IOTA, too, is... Like, I've been doing this long enough that I don't really blame people for having terrible bugs in their software, right? Like, everyone slips up occasionally, you see a lot of great teams with really qualified people have dumb bugs, because that's how developing software works right now. But the thing that really horrifies me is the response to having those bugs, having someone exhaust a ton of time finding those bugs for you for free, write up a detailed explanation as well as how to fix it, and then just you know, spitting in their faces. Yeah. Like having bugs, everyone has bugs. That's how software works. But what you do when someone finds those bugs is a lot of what really matters. And the fact that they did just everything wrong there is, I think, the real horror story.
0: I think that's a, that's a really nice conclusion. Or it's a really important conclusion. I don't know if nice is the word, but thanks so much for uh, talking to us. This has been really I like, kind of a cool journey through what you guys are doing.
2: Thanks for having me. It's been a blast.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot. I, I love talking about this topic. And uh, there's so much to dig into here that I like I, I say this almost every episode. But like there's like a million things that I want to dig into in, in all of these things. And like I could go on forever, but uh, we have to call it at some point. So uh, thank you very much for for coming on the show and talking to us.
0: And to our listeners, thanks for listening.
1: Thanks for listening.